that red line is going. We're recording. So we've known each other for a long time. Yes, we have. I was trying to put a number on it, like 25 years? Fifth, fifth grade. Fifth grade, so fifth, fifth grade, grade. So we are 10. 10, so 30. 25 or 26 yeah. years. That's a long time. Yep. Um, as it were, you're, you're the third guest on this podcast. And happy to be it. But the first one that is a native Utah, so other the other two individuals I had were not born and raised here. So I got their kind of perspective of like what it was like coming to Utah and figuring out Utah. But as somebody that's born and raised here, I'm curious kind of like if you ever are insightful or reflective of like, oh, I was born and raised in Utah and that's it's great or this is weird or... Uh, tell me your experience. Yeah, no, I was uh, <clears throat> born in Logan. I uh, was lived in St. George for a little bit when I was three, but m- mostly just raised in Orem, Utah, center of Utah Valley. Mm. That's where we met. Um, and yeah, I mean, it wasn't. I would say I wasn't super insightful, like during the developmental years. Um, n- knew that I had a you know safe community, but wasn't really aware of much outside of that um we we played soccer so we would travel you know to other places but not not in the context of really understanding what communities were like sure out outside of utah i think going to college got a little bit more exposure and everything and um ended up you know serving an lds mission that was out of the country coming back um then ended up living outside of Utah for grad school. And that's where I think I really under, started to understand the, the cultural differences. Um, I remember previous to that in college once, somebody was like, it was in some some upper level undergrad class and they said, oh, we were talking about Utah sheltered. And they said, I'll bet you I can point out who was born and raised here in Utah. Uh-huh. And I was like, okay. They said, "Who knows what Bacardi is?" <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> or no, no, it was who doesn't know what Bacardi is. Okay. And I was like, I raised my hand. I have no idea. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was back from my mission, so I was what you know, twenty two, twenty three, uh-huh. and had no idea what it was. And raised my hand. They called me out. They're like, "What do you think it is?" And I just gave some answer. And then it, they, it was kind of this. Um, they weren't doing it in a, they were kind of doing it in a, let's make fun of this person. Way. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I kind of like me being me, I kind of pushed back. I was like, okay, so does, what does that mean to you? What just, cause I didn't know what that was. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we had this conversation about, well, what does it mean to be sheltered? What does it mean to have, um, an idea of what the outside community is? And it, and it really brought to my attention at that time, just like, yes, there's things about, the community I grew up in that means I don't have as much awareness to other things and that's okay. Uh-huh. Like Bacardi, I, that, that didn't make a lot of influence on my life, whether I knew that or not. But then there's other things where I learned living in Houston, a very diverse area, um, where I was very involved in the community and learning things, man, I didn't know this about people. Okay. Because now I have this more diverse understanding of how people function. So then I also realized that there's a there is this other side. Sure. Um, that I haven't experienced, and, and I appreciated those experiences. 
yeah, I, I think I've probably experienced some similar things. So I, I think you're probably going on to maybe say to some some level it was helpful for you to experience like the people level of it maybe knowing what Bacardi is and not knowing what it is doesn't matter at some level other than for pop culture reasons or whatever but but like understanding this different level of people I think that's a very interesting thing what what was your main sort of insights or perspective yeah on that. yeah i think i think what i realized was understanding people's diverse experiences brings a richness to my own understanding and how i relate to people and okay. that's very core to to us as social beings yeah right so the more i i could the more i could um understand that there are so many ways that people experience life and cultures help me be more empathic help mm. me be more patient mm-hmm. even with people who are much more similar in my in our backgrounds and experiences i still could transpose some of that to be like man i don't know what that was like for you because i just learned that people have such different experiences to to what i grew up with right um so i think it made me it it allowed me to see people as more human okay versus um uh seeing them just through my own lens yeah and it just allowed me to um uh yeah put on different lenses or or try to right there's yeah there's i I can't put on a lens and, and understand somebody's culture perfectly but be able to understand uh or or at least appreciate somebody's experience yeah, I, I think it's very interesting. You used the word kind of like seeing people as more more human, and you were trying to kind of like I don't know, put together what that exactly that meant. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, me too. Like I'm still trying to work that out. Like because I think to some level, you know, growing up in Orem, Utah, is it even maybe a little bit more of a bubble than just compared to Utah in general. Yeah. So when we at least when I was introduced to somebody that came from outside of the bubble, it was kind of like some them being other a little bit, like the experience of being other. I was, this is my place, Orem, Utah. You're coming in wherever you're from, and you're kind of seen as an other. I don't, is that kind of what you mean in, in some sort of level, is this um, other experience? Other, other in the sense that we're... I think I grew an appreciation that we're all other. Okay. Right? Like, we all have an other part of us in comparison to whoever we're interacting with. Yeah. And if we can both understand that and appreciate that and um, uh, draw upon that to grow a, you know, even just a passing relationship or a more intimate in-depth relationship, um, that understanding that we the even in Orm, Utah, we all had different experiences uh, in our households. And it, it might also be colored by at the same time during that kind of more exposure to um, uh, differences and culture. I was also going through formal um, clinical training in grad okay. school. So I was also being indoctrinated somewhat sure. <laughs> at the same time yeah. to... Um, how to help people who are struggling and how to understand somebody's background and how their experiences shape how they react emotionally and how they relate to other people and how they do or don't gain or maintain relationships. Mm. So at the same time, I was being 
taught from a clinical standpoint to understand how those things affect how people think and behave. Mm. Um, so, so yes, I, I, I think that to the point that we're all, we're all, uh, different in ways and our even similar experiences around us, um, shape how we see the world and we see ourselves. Yeah. So when you're saying your clinical training, your clinical psychology. Yes. So the age old question, question in psychology is this nature versus nurture sort of thing, right? Like <laughs> right. where do we, where is that line? Is there a line? Is it all kind of how we were raised? Uh, I don't want you to solve that <laughs> conundrum, but like from your experience and then learning to maybe see each person as an individual what like yeah talk about that yeah i mean nature versus nurture i think it's still uh, something that we still talk about but i don't think we talk about it as um in in the extremes as we used to or in the dichotomy that we used to we see that or i see that much more on a spectrum right so there's things that are constantly being influenced by verse nature versus nurture um and for the most part we we talk a lot of nowadays about predispositions so our okay. our our nature can predispose us to uh have certain reactions that if we have the opportunity or to have an experience which is the nurture part right what happens around us or to us if we have a predisposition to react a certain way, then then we might have a certain type of experience. So it's both nature and nurture kind of happening simultaneously. Sure. And, you know, my my genes, my genetics, my things that I've, uh, you know, uh, received through, um, uh, you know, hereditary, then I may be more predisposed to react a certain way, emotionally sure. or, or, or whatnot. So, um, so yeah, I think when it comes to like seeing people as others, then yeah, we may still have some nature versus nurture, but I think the relationship is probably a little bit more on the, the nurture side. Mm. Um, I think we are influenced by how we see people treat other people. Mm, yeah. And if we've only seen a, a very limited type of interaction, then we only have experience and the ability to transpose or to learn that behavior and apply it to a different setting. And as we have more diverse experiences and watching and seeing how different people react and, and interact, then we have more to draw from, from when we're in a similar but different situation. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, my my nat natural inclination is to kind of take this path and where does it lead to or is it coming from a path of religion at all for me because I know my experience in growing up in Orem like religion growing up Mormon was a very like integral part of me my perspective on right relationship other people how to treat other people um who I spent my time with, friends, all of that sort of stuff was very influenced. How about for you? Yeah, equally. I mean, I think that's part of the culture, right? Whether yeah. you were uh, whatever level of activity in the LDS church or familiarity with it, it's in, in the area we grew up in, it was part of the culture. Mm. So I have friends now that grew up in Utah Valley, weren't LDS, but they 
know the LDS culture. Sure. They understand it. They're able to, you know, see me and I see them as, um, uh, and we can relate in that way, even, even though we have a slightly different experience, um, maybe not even slightly significant different experience sure. in our relation to, to the church. But, um, so, so yeah, growing up in the area, I think did obviously influence my culture, how I grew up, how I saw people interact, how I didn't see people interact. Um, yeah. There was another thought I had, but it'll come back. Yeah. And to the extent, like, where, like, you look back on it now and say, I really like how this shapes how I interact with people, or I haven't thought too much about that, or, I don't know, just some general thoughts about maybe looking back about how that shaped you and how you re- interact or yeah. react with people. Yeah, with, without getting too too into the actual religious part of it, sure. I think in general, we, go, go back to what we were just talking about in terms of how we see people, how how we learned to, to, how we saw people interact, how we learned to see people interact, and then how we transpose that to our interactions. Uh-huh. I think it's influenced by... Um, uh, let, let's call it um, ethics or morals or um, uh, values that, that we have. So mm-hmm. let's say kindness, right? So if I'm going to see somebody who's different than me or other, as we were talking about earlier, with kindness, then I need to have um, to some degree witnessed what that looks like. It's a very arbitrary concept. Um, and emotions like well what how do how do I show that how do I interact with somebody how do I receive kindness how should I give kindness and so I think culture religion morals ethics guidelines any system that allows us to understand how to appropriately interact with people is good Mm. and so for some people let's just say religion, or even just a culture that values kindness, service, um, uh, I think is valuable for, for anyone in that, in that culture. Uh, now, there's other parts of, of how we see people behave and interact and, and react that, um, that may not align with those values. Sure. But in general... For us to develop and for children to develop, we have to have some sort of compass, guideline, system um, uh, to teach us what's appropriate, what's not. And I think uh, a a culture or religion or a system that values, um, you know, being neighborly and, and, and serving people and being kind and kind of the Christian values that are inherent in in uh, in in the culture that we grew up in, in the community we grew up in, I think is valuable. Yeah, yeah. not everyone does that all the time, every time. Yeah, right? of so you witness how that that doesn't play out, but more often than not, you 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 pick up on when it does happen, and those are the things that we can repeat. And those are the things my kids see and are able to repeat. Yeah, which which makes total sense, and I I would agree that. You know, there's gr- those are great ways for you to learn or for a kid to learn about how those interactions work and then making them work in their own lives. 
um, I think to a certain level, like any religion is sort of like this playbook that's already been written. Like if we follow this playbook to a certain level, all is good sort of thing. And that includes how we interact with each other. Do you think that there's room for that playbook to be expanded as as time goes on, as, you know, you do work as a psychologist or, you know, whatever field you were in? Is there room for expansion in this playbook? Um, Make sure I understand your question. So the the guidelines the 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 values that are inherent in a culture let's just say in in the LDS culture in in this area or in the area that we grew up in um, has some certain guidelines or playbook as you put it uh-huh. and so should those plays the, the, the plays in that playbook be enhanced or expanded upon yeah just as time goes on we get more insight we get more information you as a professional can come to those you interact with and say well, wait a second what about you know what if we looked at doing things this way or this way you know a little bit different than the original playbook said we should sure sure okay yeah. okay so so yes, let me put some caveats to that, that with, again, not getting too far into the religion, I think that there's some core values that don't change, right? Mm. Um, that they're truths that, 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 that don't change um, and our understanding of them can expand our, um, our use of them and our ability to apply them in our lives and in other aspects of our lives, those can always expand, but the truths that that are the foundation don't change. Mm. However, I would, I would say that those kind of truths, those foundational truths are, um, uh, there are, uh, there are less of those and more of the ones that we learn of. You know, we learn and we expand. On. Okay. So sense, while yeah. there are both, I think that for the most part, a lot of what we do is learning and expanding and understanding. And as new things um, influence our lives and our culture, uh, then we have to expand our understanding and our playbook, right? Sure. So, uh, uh, you know, even thinking of just when we were kids, we didn't have cell phones, right? We're of sure. that early millennial group where we didn't grow up with cell phones I got my first first cell phone when I was in college right and um, so kids nowadays are having I mean that's that's the kind of the quintessential example but it is it's a good one it's a generational difference where now we have to interact and understand how to interact differently Mm. and from a culture religious uh, spiritual um, uh, uh, moral, ethical, you know, value-based approach. Yes, we have to learn. Well, how do we understand these new things in into our value system? So, absolutely, we need to expand. As we <clears throat> going back to the to an earlier part of this conversation as well as as we understand as as others in a sense, um, as we learn more about how other people are and their experiences. Absolutely, well, we have to expand and understand that as well, um, and that I think that's just ongoing and and always will be. Mm. We will constantly be learning more about each other and how 
and how we grew up and as we have different experiences and generational differences we have to expand how we interact with each other and understand each other yeah i think that's a very important insight for probably yourself and everybody else is that we should always look at it look at it as expanding growing what can we learn from the situation how does it apply to my current situation my frame my perspective and right. and go from there right. um i will say you know we are recording on library equipment and the computer just went to sleep so i think maybe <laughs> just pause for a second and see if i can get them to unlock it real quick hold on folks we might edit this out we might not <laughs> every few minutes yeah i'm gonna have to touch the mouse every once in a while good news it's still recording 21 minutes in. <laughs> sounds good um so yeah kind of the last thought that just before we were interrupted by the, the computer going to sleep was this idea that yeah of course we always need to kind of ex- grow expand learn from whatever's happening in the world and, and take it with us um I think this kind of leads me to another area where I'm very curious about kind of your own personal path is because you know, knowing you since we were in fifth grade, I've always known you to be a very driven person, always to do very well in school and uh, high achievement in all other areas of life. But I, I didn't know that this would necessarily lead you down the path of being an entrepreneur, which is where you are now. Yeah. So maybe talk about that path. I don't know. Was there any insights early in your age to like, this is kind of what I want to do? Or you just kind of arrived there one day because of opportunity and here we are. Yeah, no, it's a it's a good question, and I, I ask myself that regularly <laughs> over the last couple of years <clears throat> since kind of taking the entrepreneurial plunge. Um, I mean, there's a couple ways to, to answer that. I, I would say at the high level, no, it wasn't necessarily my idea to be entrepreneurial. Um, from the beginning, I went into a career that was, um, you know, very stable, so to speak, aligned with, you know, higher education that, that, that was like a safety net, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and somewhat of a, at least early on going into it, deciding to, to become a psychologist was, um, you know, it it was somewhat prescribed Mm -hmm. in the sense like, okay, there's, I, I, go to this schooling and I pass these tests and I get this license and certification to do these things. Mm. There was not a lot of unknown. Yeah. Um, and, and so there was safety and stability with that. Right. Yeah, for um, sure. Early on. I mean, I was 
it, it, I was really young comparatively um, when I got into my doctorate program. So um, I uh, got through undergrad pretty quickly. We both took a lot of concurrent enrollment in high school. So by the time I graduated, I only had three classes for associates. Um, went on my mission, came back and kind of accelerated through my junior and senior year. So I really only had two years of formal formal college. So I'm 20, let's say 2100. I was 22, um, skipping my master's degree mm. and going straight into a doctorate program in, yeah. a, in a competitive um, program where they only accepted, you know, seven to nine people a year. Right. And um, so at, at that time, I had gotten married, wanting to start a family. Um, and my biggest value at the time was stability for for my uh, my current you know spouse and my future family uh-huh. and so that played a lot into my early my early career choices I actually got home from my eldest mission wanting to be a geologist you and I took, uh, yeah, took yeah. Yeah. quite a few uh, environmental science and geology courses. we traveled to Costa Rica together when we were 16 to study you know volcanoes, volcanoes and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's what I wanted to be and got back and, and realized you know there was somewhat some instability in that I was going to have to move around a lot mm-hmm. and um, I had some other influences that drove me a little bit more towards psychology we could go down that path if we wanted to but um, of how I got into it but once I said hey this is an option and I'm going to ch- try to choose between these two sciences the one was more stability mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> fast forward grad school graduate you know and I'm 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 stable. I've got my jobs. I'm going through, and, and I get to a point in my career where I was like, okay, things are stable, things are good, and I could stay here, right here, with some inflation year over year. But like I, I, you know, accelerated, moved up the the ladder. I was in a C-suite position, overseeing, you know, I, I was in a pretty sweet gig, yeah, and I was happy, um, stable, making. Um, uh, more money than I ever thought I would, to be honest. Yeah. Um, not astronomical, but just just you know, doing well. Um, <clears throat> and and I thought, okay, I could just stay there. And really, what drove the entrepreneurial plunge was I had spent a lot of my career as a psychologist helping people who were right in front of me, uh-huh. one person at a time, one family at a time, and uh-huh. I felt a lot of value in that. I felt a lot of fulfillment in that but as I kind of got to the point in my career where I kind of looked up a little bit more and kind of looked at the industry as a whole beyond the individual or the family that was sitting right across from me and realized that there were a lot of people suffering out there that didn't end up across me Mm. um, uh, across from me or across from somebody like me and so I kind of had this existential moment uh, and it was less of a moment more of kind of a, a a long you know expansion of of my awareness but that I could continue to treat people who were right in front of me one at a time and I would do my part but it still wouldn't solve the bigger problem and so uh, at some point if I had the opportunity to make more of a macro influence 
than the micro influence, albeit that that was also fulfilling and valuable and families need somebody to sit across from um, to, to work through things. But if I wanted to make a, an impact on an industry to change how we approached behavioral health and mental health, I was going to have to do something more than than be a therapist. Sure. Um, and so I started kind of intentionally finding opportunities to to move my career in those in those ways. Um, and uh, another longer story we could get into if we wanted, but came across some technologists who had, who wanted to similarly use technology to change how we delivered mental health and behavioral health care. Mm. And, um, and so they said, well, given your experience, let's consult. And so I said, okay, I had a, I had a private practice. I was doing a bunch of consulting anyways, um, but not necessarily in technology companies, but, and so we just started doing consulting and, uh, we did that for about a year and eventually said, Hey, you should just come over full time. And I was like, Oh no, 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 no. I like my stability. I like my, what I can see it's prescribed. I'm not, I'm not, I'm risk averse, uh, uh-huh. you know, um, I'm not an entrepreneur, uh, but I can definitely help. And there I go, okay, well, it's very valuable. Let's just keep doing that. You know, a couple months later they said, Hey, we really want you to do that. You know? So it got to a point where I, I really realized I had this opportunity that I had I had been working for sure. to, to make a macro influence. Uh-huh. But in order to actually make the splash, I was going to have to take some risks. Uh-huh. And I realized that I wasn't going to do that being like, oh, I'll make this macro influence, but just by staying safely ashore, <laughs> right? Yeah. But if I was really going to change dynamically how how we approach mental and behavioral health, I was going to have to put some skin in the game as well. Yeah. Not, yeah. not financially, but just in my career. Right? Sure. I was going to have to leave the safety of my stable gig and go do something that somebody's never done before. Yeah. Because that's what it's going to take yeah. to change to change how we're doing things. Uh, and it took me probably another six months. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of, for sure. Kind of going back and forth and talking to a lot of people and trying to get to a place. Luckily, my wife's very, very supportive. She's like, no, you got to do it. Like, look, you can always fall back on just yeah. going back to doing your, your, you know, psychologist work. But this is, this is the opportunity. If it fails, it fails. But, you know, you've been wanting to make a macro influence and this is, this is it, but it's going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Nobody's done it before. Right. You're gonna have to figure it out and you're just gonna have to do it. So anyway, that's how I ended up taking the entrepreneurial plunge, um, kind of leaving traditional psychology practice, joining a, a technology startup to, to make a bigger difference in, in, in how we deliver and, uh, support people going through mental and behavioral health treatment. Yeah, I, I really like that. And I, I want to talk more about this, you know, larger net to support mental health sort of thing. But I kind of want to go back because this area really fascinates me because I've faced this same sort of mental hurdle, the area of risk. Like, mm-hmm. I really like the idea of stability too. Like, knowing what I'm getting. You know, no, I'm going to make a certain amount of money and then I have a health insurance and then, 
oh. or you know other parts of life that yeah, I just know what to expect it's nicer right yeah but I've, I've also realized as I've gotten older and I don't know if it's a process of age or a process of different life experiences but as I've got older I'm like I gotta start taking more risks yeah. you know if part of it is living life for me like enjoying life mm -hmm. to a certain level but part of it is, is yeah, like I think if you're going to have a bigger influence in lots of areas, you got to be more risky. Another word for risk might be vulnerability, mm. you know, might be whatever it is. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you have any insight on like what that was that you were able to make that shift? Obviously, you mentioned it took you a period of time, but like what are, what other factors? Or was it finally like, OK, I'm finally able to wrap my mind around like, let's just go for this. Yeah, um, a few things come to mind. I think I'll, I'll re repeat what I said before. Was just like that insight of just like, okay, we're you know, it's gonna take somebody being bold to make uh, to make that level of, of difference. So um, like a larger like, goal or larger. Yeah, yeah. It's not. This isn't prescribed. There isn't a playbook. There isn't a guideline. This is just hasn't been done before, and it just. You know, somebody's just gonna have to do it, and if, and um, there was a portion of my career was like, oh yeah, there's people who specialize in doing those things. Mm -hmm. There's people who specialize in doing things that haven't been done before, and part of the realization was like, no, there's not. Uh, <laughs> there's yeah. just people just being bold, just figuring right. it out. Like, right. the, the, like I thought there was this some special breed of people or this degree that I didn't know existed in grad school. I mean, yes, that you can major in entrepreneurship, you can major in, um, you know, business administration, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to make bold decisions with that and, right. and make, you know, and disrupt industries. And so I really realized that there, there, there wasn't some sort of special training. It's just somebody who's passionate about solving a problem and that's the person. So I realized that that I wasn't not that person. Right. Yeah. Um, I like that. And and it's just like, man, yeah, like I'm uh, I'm I'm no more no more equipped or no less equipped than another person who just had a passionate idea and just went for it. Right. Um, so that that's that part. Of, of course, there was some there was some enough stability for me to do it. So I would say that my experience wasn't maybe uh, the uh, I don't know if traditional is the right word, but more of the um, stereotypical entrepreneurial plunge where it's like, okay, we're just going to quit our jobs, live off of loans, live off of the nest egg, live off of savings, start in the garage like that. That wasn't it for me, and that's actually probably one of the reasons why I was able to to find myself. To the, getting to the point to take the risk was, you know, my partners had are serial entrepreneurs had uh, taken those risks. So yeah. So by the time I came into the picture, they had, you know, an, an amount of money to invest, um, had some stability around them that, you know, that uh, allowed me to have some stability. So I didn't have to like not take a salary or not have in, in health mm. insurance. So just from day one, from quitting my job and, and, and starting the business, I had uh, a salary, I had health insurance, and I had some some level of stability around me because people had, you know, had been successful b before and I, you know, knew that that could go a long way. Um, 
So I say risk, but I, I'd say there's people out there who have taken much, 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 sure. much more risk to, to, to try to um, make it make a difference than I had. I, it was it was a it was less of a risky thing to do for me, and I think that's why I was able um, uh, uh, to do it. Um, and then I would say the, the 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 final thought on on that was. Um, uh, well, I think I, I think I lost it. Um, maybe something to the effect of, uh, I had an, I had enough support around me that, that, um, you know, was able just to, you know, kind of that idea of like, well, the, what's the worst that could happen? Mm. And it, and of barring extremes, sure. right? Yeah. That, um, that that I'd go, I'd learn, and it, you know it could not go well, but I would have learned, and I could come back to doing something yeah. more, or yeah. take that experience and 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 move on. And you know, luckily, it's gone well, and things are good, and I'm and I still have those things, still learning, still growing, yeah. Yeah. and. Um, wanting to apply those things to other areas. Yeah, the game of worst-case scenario is actually very helpful for me. I don't know if other people play it, but I play it a lot now, and it really helps me to, like, really understand, you know, the depth or breadth of a risk or a situation in life. Like, if I really get down to it, like, worst, worst, worst-case scenario, I was like, uh, that's actually not that bad. And, you know, those worst, worst, worst-case scenarios are very, very low percentage of those things actually happening. So, like, right. you know, some bad things might happen. You might have to go back and, you know, work a, a menial job for a period of time or whatever. Right. But, like... Is it worth the risk? Yeah, most of the time it definitely yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If from from that approach of, um, you know, I wouldn't have quit my job and taken the risk for kind of a lateral movement of just like I'll just do more of the same in a different area. Uh-huh. It's like there's a big enough opportunity to make a big enough change that yeah, it, that's 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 worth the risk. And then I, I did remember this 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 last thought, which was. I had been valuing stability for so long. Um, and I think probably to your point earlier, it's just like, you didn't know if it comes with age or life experience, you get to this point where you're, you know, um, less risk averse. And I think part of that was that life experience. I realized nothing is stable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I had had this, 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 uh, this, uh, vision of like, oh, that's st- stability. Uh-huh. And I think, I mean, this was pre-pandemic, but even this last, you know, last 18 months has taught us that nothing's really stable. So I think I just matured and realized, and I looked around me that the stability that I was seeking for, um, while probably more stable than, than other things, uh-huh. isn't necessarily inherently stable. Yeah. Right. And so it was like, uh, it's, it's just, um, less likely to to um uh you know uh, uh deteriorate in in a in a uh, financial crisis right like yeah construction or something but there's a few things that are that are a little bit more stable education healthcare those things continue even through recessions but even then it's not the same level of stability and security that i that i was attaching to it yeah so i just yeah. kind of realized well <laughs> 
that that, that idea of st- stability is 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 somewhat of a an arbitrary threshold anyway for sure and so might as well might as well yeah. take a risk after all you know going back to the geology thing we are on a spinning rock in <laughs> outer space you know like <laughs> that stability then uh, interesting right but right right and it's all and, about your perspective right right i think i think my world view expanded and and so what was once risky it, because my frame of reference was so small and that uh, and that viewers can't see my hands but like my frame of reference is this box and there's this line up at the high top of it that's where risk existed mm. but as my box or my window and my view of the world expanded that line never changed right but what i could see above it is now exponentially larger and so now I look at it in the bigger picture. It's like actually that's not as much risk yeah. as it as it used to be, even though it itself hadn't moved. Right. But but it, in comparison to the larger scheme, um, had changed. So I realized that there just wasn't as much that I was risking. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, going back to kind of telling your experience about living other places probably your your world of view expanded because of those opportunities as well so putting some of that in perspective now given time away from home and different scenarios you know that university a learning experience a religious experience those sort of things all expand that ability to take on some risk probably absolutely yeah yeah so going back to this bigger problem you're solving you know we kind of put it as behavior health mental health uh, any more specific i mean mental health is kind of like just talking about health you know yeah yeah health is a everyday thing mental health is probably an everyday thing so talk to about like what problem you're looking to solve yeah i mean when when i started thinking about this micro problem versus macro problem or this what type of influence is needed um so in my in my training as a psychologist you know i'm trained and certified in and licensed to do very specific things that not a lot of people can do in Mm -hmm. comparison so you know I ended up having, um, you know, a really long wait list of people who needed to come have, you know, see me for my specific skill set. Um, and, uh, and during that evaluation, um, that evaluation was going to be used for the next one to three years to drive treatment for that, for that person. And, I mean, to boil it down, what I really realized is um, I actually don't know a lot about these people. Mm. (laughs) Like I, I, I spent, I'm, I'm at the top of the top of the food chain when it comes to who do you go to, to figure out what's going on. Right. Mm. And, and even, even me as a psychologist doing psychological and neuropsychological evaluations to to determine diagnostics etiology uh um and treatment recommendations and um uh prognosis i only had the information that was directly in front of me Mm. through traditional assessments um through interviews with the individual or with family members of the individual but still just a, a, a snapshot of what was going on. And I really realized that 
as a whole, we actually have very little insight into how people are doing when they're not directly in front of us, Mm -hmm. when they're not in my office in a session, or when they're not in my facility in treatment. Once they leave, they're kind of on their own. (laughs) And I actually have very, very little insight into what they're doing. So think about like a psychiatrist who prescribes a medication and then the person leaves. And we kind of just cross our fingers and say, good luck. Let me know if you have a side effect. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, and then when the person has a side effect, um, maybe they're aware of it. Maybe they're not. Uh, Maybe they get some help. Maybe they call back. And if they do, it's likely that I'll have a wait list or or the psychiatrist will have a wait list. They may end up just in an ER because they can't wait three weeks till the next appointment. And let's say even they do get an appointment, they'll come back in and and okay tell me a little bit about what's going on we know people suck at self-reporting right i can't remember especially when i'm dealing with um you know a crisis or mental health issues i'm trying to get through today i can't remember last week right i can't remember the week before and you know when i was doing therapy i would spend the first 20 to 40 percent of my session just trying to get a download so Peter, how have you been since yeah, I last saw yeah, you? Tell yeah. me what's been going on. And you would say, it's been okay. And I'd say, what does okay mean? And we'd actually just have no data. Right. We have very, let me rephrase that. We have very limited data to drive our treatment decisions when it comes to mental health. Mm. So you compare it to, let's say, um, you know, um, uh, high blood pressure. So people can be monitored for that. So I sure. put, put a blue bluetooth enabled or wi-fi enabled blood pressure cuff and i know your blood pressure you know or uh, somebody with diabetes and you have a glucometer like i know i have these data points multiple times a day cardiac right you have pacemaker like i have data about how you're doing so that it can drive the doctor can make decisions off of that we don't have that mm for mental health. We don't have that for behavioral health. We have very limited data and very subjective data right. and drive decisions. And so I kind of had this aha moment of like, no wonder our, our kind of demand is high, capacity to meet that demand is low, our quote unquote success rates or our ability to track are, are kind of like all over the place. It's, it's Even that's just hard to track. And so there's got to be a better way to have better data-driven treatment decisions we don't how do, how do we have that same sort of data that we have for all these other chronic conditions um how can we have that for mental health and behavioral health uh and so that's kind of what drove uh when i met these technologists and had the ability to leverage some technology to do something to that effect that really intrigued me mm. um, where where we can have data around how people are doing emotionally uh, when they're not directly in front of a practitioner or a clinician uh, and that that can really move the needle when it comes to um, data-driven treatment decisions um, uh, early detection uh, progress monitoring who's in crisis, who's not, who needs attention now, who's not, right? Like right. just adding more therapists isn't going to solve a problem. Sure. Um, uh, it's going to solve a micro problem, right? It's right. Like they're going to be able to meet with more people, but it's not going to solve the macro problem. Right. Um, and we, and, and so we need something somehow, some technology to, to help us do that. Yeah. So as I'm trying to like understand 
and of course you can give us a little bit more insight on where this is going but as I'm trying to understand this I'm looking at like of course the different levels of health and mental health that go into this I've seen a therapist I go to a therapist mostly to kind of like blow off some steam and talk about what's going on in my life and to get some insightful feedback so that I can maybe take that feedback and apply it this sounds like maybe a whole nother level that might be more helpful for those that experience a little bit higher forms of mental health or yeah, I don't talk yeah. about that. Yeah, I would say, I'd say, look, people, the, the idea of personalized health care is applicable across the board. Like uh-huh. th- there was a time where we saw a doctor we've got a prescription or we got a decision in it and that just happened but i think nowadays people are expecting more personalized healthcare. we yeah. want our doctor our, our provider whoever that is a dermatologist a dentist whatever like to kind of know me as it right? should be right and yeah. yeah and and to know how i function in and you know barring very specific medical cases um a a, a lot of what happens in uh, 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 across lots of health conditions are, well, how is that different for you, Peter? Mm. But if I don't know how you were before, then I can't really tell a difference of how you are now. Mm. Yeah. Nor could I make a difference in six months from now if you made a change, right? Like, I actually uh, have to know much more about you as a person to treat you appropriately. Mm. We just don't have the time, capacity, or business model <laughs> sure. to have a doctor get to know you at that level of right. of, uh, of a personal level. Um, even if I'm treating you for chronic pain, um, sure, I can make that pain go away with some drugs, but if that doesn't allow you to improve your quality of life and all the other stuff that makes every patient a person we don't track those things we track vital signs only the minimally necessary to make a treatment decision but there's so much more about our patients and about our clients that make them a person that influence their overall health outcomes so we need to know more about their emotions we need to know more about their movement their language how they communicate how they learn how they um uh, make change like we have to know all of those things in order to truly deliver personalized health care uh-huh. there's just no way to really get to know that person unless we have this um, you know uh, unless we assign a, a nurse to just walk around with you all the time right right which happens in very unique cases but that's just that's not scalable so so technology can be a proxy for that mm-hmm. how can we understand more about how somebody thinks how somebody reacts interacts what their emotions are what's their normal when are they deviating from that normal when are they up when are they down when are they sideways uh, that that takes getting to know a person and technology can help us do that so are we kind of speaking to uh, some sort of cross between something wearable and something that the client patient can report like on their phone like a a reminder pops up to like record how you're feeling (laughs) right now or something more specific yeah so for a long time uh, especially in like let's just say take pain for example rate your pain on a scale of 1 to 10 Mm. right and that's a data point right and so if if you rate it as a 10 
I did some sort of intervention, you rated it an eight, then things have improved. I did something more and you got right. a six. And if the goal is to get you to a three, great. Right. Um, so at the very at the very simple level, yes, having more clinical data points, like a one to ten of just like, well, how are you doing? Let's now let's translate that to like um, somebody um, uh, dealing with uh, depressive symptoms. Um, tell me on a scale of one to ten how how you're doing, better, worse, or about the same, mm-hmm. right? And so I can, if I can have those data points over days, weeks, months, then all of a sudden I can create you know this storyline. Um, we've been so we've been doing that in traditional like survey methods for for a while, but it just it's very cumbersome. Um, and, and and not super clinically sophisticated. Yeah. So then we got to these doing these things for like mood journals. Okay, well, just record your mood. Super subjective, very inaccurate, and um, like uh, self-report, right? Like that 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 is only as good as how insightful that person is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so what we've been trying to build is a way to make that subjective more objective. Right. So we're talking about how can we use technology, um, uh, like artificial intelligence, for example, how can we extract emotions from uh, uh, kind of a mood journal, so to speak, right? If somebody were to record themselves um, on audio or visual, can we take facial expressions? Can we take tonality? Can we take inflection? Can we take the words that they're using and how they're using them and get an idea of how they're doing? Right. Um, and so that's what we've been working on, drawing off of you know previous work that other people have done. But um, I think we've um, built some, some things that are uh, different and unique and kind of pioneering this idea of um, yes we can make that subjective emotional experience more objective mm. and once we can do that then we can start gathering data points that are uh, that can be used for data driven decision making yeah that, that sounds very interesting maybe I could be the test subject because I think <laughs> the AI would be like he's monotone his affect does not change he mumbles a lot we don't know what the hell is going on with this guy <laughs> yeah I mean uh, there, there's a little bit of like uh, you know um, what we're working towards and, and things that we want to build over time and I think you know that that's very exciting so we're working on some um, research projects right now where um, look if we can uh, let's say Sally was diagnosed with bipolar disorder um, and, and bipolar disorder is notorious kind of uh, uh, for ups and downs mm-hmm. and kind of ins and outs of hospitalization kind of this revolving door but we actually really don't know how Sally does when she's out of the hospital sure. because we're not walking around with her right um, so if we can kind of track a little bit and monitor Sally a little bit, yes, with some wearables or, or even just through what, what we specialize in is video responses. So um, uh, instead of just self-report on a, on a survey or a multiple choice or a mood journal, they actually record themselves um, on video answering certain prompts. Oh, and then we have an AI layer on top of that that extracts information out of the video, such as the emotions they might be feeling, their tonality, the word choice, um, things that, as as your clinician as well, things that you and I, when when we're sitting in front of people, we're taught. Well, what do we look for and what do we listen for? Mm. Um, 
to understand how to help somebody and what they might be struggling with. Right. And so what we've done is just take those protocols, take that research, take that, and teach um, some computer analytics to look for and listen for those same things. So go back, going back to Sally, so if we monitor Sally, so let's just say she's checking in a couple times a week or once a week, we start to learn what Sally normally looks like, sounds like, talks like. Uh-huh. Um, and then let's say she goes into a depressive or a manic episode um, associated with bipolar. So now we know what uh, Sally looks like, sounds like, um, and talks like uh, kind of quote unquote normally. We know now know what she looks like, sounds like, talks like when she's in a bite or when she's in a manic or a depressive episode. And if we know that, we also know the in between. Mm. We know what Sally looks like, sounds like, and talks like right before mm. a manic episode and right before a depressive episode. So now we're really getting predictive. Now we're really getting preventative. So we can mm-hmm. actually start to learn what it's like right before those things happen. But that takes some time to gather the data at a, at, and really understand Sally. Right. And it takes technology to do that. Um, and we've seen that play out. So we're working on a research study to do that to, um, with the university to, uh, to track um, uh, a set of uh, patients diagnosed with bipolar over a period of time and and uh, and start to, to learn those patterns at an individual level as well as a population level. Right. And we've seen that play out with our current customers. Um, you know, we had a, 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 a patient, a client who was checking in on, on our platform and um, uh, he, w- he was uh, dealing with some uh, drug addiction and so he was in, had been in rehab. The uh, the treatment center had, uh, after he left the treatment center, had him check in on, on our platform once a week for a couple months after that. So they can kind of just keep track of it. And uh, during one of the video check-ins, our AI picked up on he was using more absolutist language. Okay. Absolutist language is, is basically just the, the AI kind of going through what he said in the video, transcribing it and kind of scrubbing through, looking for words like always and never. And he had increased in his amount, his total percent usage of those type of words over the last couple of weeks. And so his therapist got that information from, from the platform and got an alert from our platform saying, hey, so-and-so is using more language like this than he normally does. So he actually brought it up with, with the, the client. And they actually had this insight. It was just like, oh, man, I don't know if we would have picked up on that, right? It's not uh-huh. like we, we sit there really trying to understand, like, okay, how many always or nevers did he use? But once they picked up on they realized that's one of the things he starts to do when he starts to decompensate, uh, right? Yeah. He starts to think in extremes. He right. starts to categorize in black and white. He starts to um, think all or nothing. And that usually has led him to uh, to drug abuse. And so that we were able to catch that early on and be like, okay, hey, not everything's black and white. We intervened, and they were able to kind of keep him on a on a on a good track. That's a, just a small example, not like you know that, that picking up an absolute language saved his life or by by any means. But it was an insight that we wouldn't have likely picked up on, right? And uh, and uh, we're we're able to at least to some degree 
um, be aware that, hey, you're starting to head down a path. Sure. Or, or this is a, a yellow flag of a uh, warning signal if you're heading down this path. So let's do it. And man, if we can do that at that level, if we can get more sophisticated on the type of metrics we can track, what we can learn about people, and what we can um, start to understand about the the the. Um, the development and pattern of of these types of chronic uh, uh, conditions, then we can really start to make a big difference on uh, early intervention and prevention rather than just remedial reaction, Yeah, which is mostly what we do nowadays. Which I love. I love the idea of prevention. Um, a lot of the work that I do is prevention-related, and I think it's super important, and I think it's something that we as a society ignore a lot. It's less about prevention and more about intervention. You know, let's wait till there's a big issue to intervene um, rather than try to prevent. A couple of things you said, though, I'll be honest, kind of scare the shit out of me because uh like you keep you keep using the word we you know we can look at the data and i'm assuming that when you say we you're actually talking about a clinician but also the technology is like the part of the we so it's almost like this weird sort of team where you have ai the patient and the clinician working together I get it. I get like that's why we're going that way because technology can be very helpful. But at the same time, it is like kind of scares the shit out of me. So like, talk me off this ledge. Like, talk me, talk to me about how this is not going to go wrong, and you know, it's all going to be good that we're using technology to help us out. Well, look, we're the, the, you know the it, technology innovation always has its um, uh, you know. I think we've seen. Through all medical innovation, there's ways that it can be used for good and ways that it can mm-hmm. be for bad. So I don't think now that we're just talking about technology, we're talking about software, we're talking about computers, we're talking about AI, that that's any different than you know the advent of new medications or you know the X-ray or something. You know that oh you know that that we're new at the time as well. Um, so yes, uh, you know there's. AI in healthcare is is gaining traction. It's gaining a lot of attention, gaining a lot of value, um, and making a big difference in a lot of areas of healthcare. So there's new guidelines coming out, and of course, people can be ethical and and not ethical. I think the things we have to think about are, um, you know, can we be accurate? Can we be um, ethical? Can can uh, these types of things? Um, uh, be used in a way that is helpful for people versus damaging to people. Mm. And and part of the, the thing that I, I would say in comparison is um, we're uh, and, and I can say this as a clinician some people may not like it but we as clinicians aren't as good as we think we are anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I would agree. Uh, about, you know, we do the best that we can and we, when we help but when it comes to really moving the needle on on very clinically sophisticated metrics in, in mental health and behavioral health, we're not super um, good at processing a lot of very uh, specific emotional and um, personal metrics at any given time, right? right? Like I'm, I could probably sit here and have a therapy session with somebody and I'm, I'm focusing on three to five kind of mental health vital signs that I'm trying to, you know, that I've... Um, picked that I'm trying to pay attention. I can't, I can't do a hundred, you know, I can't pay attention to how fast 
they're talking unless it's in extreme buckets. Right. Um, but a, a computer can can help us do that. So in a in a sense, technology can help empower clinicians um, to be better, not replace right. replace clinicians. Um, and and you know, there's there's been in the past kind of this trauma for the lack of a better word, not clinically, but um, there's been this experience by people having this kind of black box understanding, meaning, hey, we're going to gather some data about you and we're going to spit out some understanding and you can't under, and you can't know how we came to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. And that's the scary part. Mm-hmm. And we as a company and we as kind of healthcare providers um want to open up that black box okay right so so our ai is what's is not black box ai so we're very even on our platform if you go over and hover over some of our computer analytics it'll tell you how we derived that okay um so let's just say rate of speech for example not very ai ish it's just how many words did you say in a minute um so a pretty objective thing to do now if you speak really 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 fast um more than normal um, does that mean you are manic? Does that mean you're anxious? Um, I don't know. The computer doesn't know mm. either. Um, it just means you're talking faster than normal. Right. So there has to be a clinician involved to say um, they won the lottery, so they're excited, <laughs> or yeah. or okay. or yeah. no, this is this is a clin. You know, so it's information that we wouldn't have had otherwise for clinicians to make better informed decisions now in the future yes i do think we will get more sophisticated so we're right now just um uh finishing up i'm speaking at a at a conference later this week and presenting our preliminary results on um we can now start to accurately predict severity of depression and anxiety based off of 30 to 60 second videos wow and, uh, you know, they don't have to go sit in front of a clinician. They don't have to go necessarily um, uh, take a big, long depression screening survey or anything. This is just can just off of some video, we can de- start to detect some of that stuff. Now, does that mean they don't have to meet with the clinician anymore? No. It just means that uh, when you check in a couple times a week or once a week, in between the times where you do see a, a clinician, now we have a lot of information about how you're doing Mm. um and that's available to a lot more people right yeah through software through through text them a link click this link video record yourself you know answering these prompts and we can get a better idea yeah not a perfect idea right but a better idea of what might be going on yeah um so I, i i do think we're getting to a place in the future will be more diagnostic more predictive right now we're we're not there um, right now we're gathering sophisticated information that we otherwise wouldn't have had to empower clinicians to right. make better decisions uh, and, and information that that we don't have the capacity to get right now we, we don't have the we don't have the time, money and resources to do that level of personalized care if I have to do it myself man. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know if somebody has a smartphone and a computer can, can check in regularly give us a little bit of some clinical data points, we can start to really understand um, the narrative of, of this person at a, at a personal level. Yeah, which is incredible. And I think, yeah, sounds like 
going to be very useful and hopefully solve a lot of problems. So, like, maybe to put this in perspective, and this is possibly just for myself, like... Google and Facebook don't want to open that black box and tell you how they're arriving to how they send you ads or what data they're collecting on you in order for them to make you money. But for you guys, you do want to open that up and let the consumer know all these metrics, everything that they're, that's going into making decisions or suggestions. And the clinician can walk you through that and say, like, look, we've collected this and this and this can be an insight for you to know this about yourself or whatever it might be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, People can gain more insight about themselves. There's this concept called feedback-informed treatment, which states that the more somebody has insight into their own progress or lack thereof, the, the quicker they can make meaningful course corrections and they get, mm. they get better quicker. Yeah. Because they have more feedback, right? right. They, it's, it's like this idea of like, how do I know if I'm on the right track if I have no understanding of, 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 of where I'm at? And yes, that can come through clinician feedback, but often these kind of look more micro feedbacks, right? right? It's more information I have about myself and more objective information I have about myself than more data I have to improve myself. And then of course for the therapist as well, right? Um, uh, this, you know, this, the sad reality is we'll do a, we'll, we'll see a patient. Um, I may think about them for a couple minutes afterwards. Mm. And then I may think, may think about them a little bit before my next interaction with them. But in between I'm off thinking about other people and people right right in front of me as well. So, um, uh, so we, so we kind of have to have, have that information about them um, to to make uh, to make those to have those those insights at a personal level and as well as the clinician right yeah um, they, they need just as much that information to to make decisions so do you anticipate or have you thought about whether you know giving the patient or the client themselves this much information and this much coaching at this sort of level if eventually they'll get to a point where they can coach themselves where they're so insightful about themselves that they don't need computer-based learning they don't need ai they don't need a clinician they're just like okay now i've i've learned my rhythms like i I can see it for myself i can course correct all by myself um will we get to the point where we have enough information that people can kind of course correct themselves i don't know I don't know. Mm. Safe um, answer. <laughs> I don't know. I, I will say, if that were the case, then great. Mm. Right? Like, I, but the reality is it's probably not, right? The, yeah. that, that humans are a little bit too complex, you know? But, you know, but maybe for certain things, like, right, if somebody has, like, a mild case of this or a mild case of that and they're not, like, in severe crisis, but they do need a little bit of help. Right. But they have to go fight for the same in the same weight line to go talk to a therapist that somebody who's actively suicidal is in. Like we have just this broad spectrum of people experiencing mental health and healthcare in general at, at so many different levels in the same line. Yeah. And so we've got to do a 
better job at kind of triaging. Mm-hmm. And those people who just need a little bit of help for a short amount of time, what can we do to give them the resources and insight to do that? And then the people who are in more severe cases who need some more help, how can we do that? How can we surface those people at the right time right. to intervene, right? Like uh, I was talking to a clinic the other day and um, you know, they'll, out of a week, uh, they'll, they'll spend about, you know, 20% of their time wasted because of no shows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Another 20 to 30% of their time, um, with people just checking in, they're actually doing okay, but just, I'm just here for my checkup, just checking in, just keep, keep on course. Um, so that's almost 50% of their time while people are just, you know, busting at the seams in ERs. Mm while people are on my wait list who are in crisis, actively suicidal, um, but I can't get them in for an opening, um, and I'm saying me, but I'm saying the royal we as as healthcare professionals. Sure. Um, you know, because I'm seeing other people right. first. Yeah. And and they, they deserve attention as well. And there's a difference. Yeah. yeah <laughs> right. Yeah. Who who needs my who needs my expertise and my attention now and um and so we've got to we've gotta do a better job at at understanding um where people are more frequently so we can intervene at the right time with the right people. Yeah. So back to your question, yes, I think there that as we can as we do that, there's a the possibility that yes there's new apps, new technology where you can kind of have these kind of like self-guided. It, it, it's like the new version of a self-help book. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> We've always I had see self-help that. Yeah. books, but yeah. it's kind of, instead of in a book, it's on an app or it's on a platform where it's like you put in this information about yourself. What are your goals? What are you trying to work on? And, and more it, interactive. Yeah. And it, and it brings in research and modalities that we know will work. Cognitive behavioral therapy approaches and we kind of and and it kind of guides you through that like yeah like look there's to be honest there's probably not going to be any shortage of issues here right. <laughs> so so i i don't i don't think you know that that by create having technology help people who are who are in a place that just need a little bit of nudge and help and and that uh, maybe not solves the problem, but addresses some of that for them, and they don't end up in my office. Great. Mm. In the end, we're not trying to replace therapists. I think there will always be a place for clinical human judgment. Um, but uh, yeah, like that—that's a, a a good step in the right direction because there's always that, that gives us more time to do what what we do best is treating people. Or, or what we do best and and what's needed most is to treat people right I mean if you think about it like people don't talk about suicide in this way but people are killing themselves like just, just let let that kind of translate for a second we have people who are literally killing themselves and and we can't intervene and we don't have the capacity to intervene and we, you know, and it's increasing, it's happening more. Um, of course, trends go up and down, but it is prevalent in all of our communities. Sure. And, uh, and 
we have to find a better way to identify and help and support and monitor these 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 people who are suffering um and if if saying hey here you're experiencing this mild condition here's some support tools because we have to focus on people who are killing themselves or who are suffering in their families and who are unstable can't hold jobs can't hold relationships like these are serious fundamental societal issues that we need to address and we don't have the time or the capacity to do it um uh and and so technology can help scale those types of 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 interactions and interventions uh, to do it it's a long way of of saying yes i think people can get to a point where they can have some self-guided treatment on kind of the more mild end of things, kind of self-help, self-improvement, overall health, wellness, right. th- th- that type of level. Yeah. But the more sophisticated, complicated, um, things are a little bit trickier, right? Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, the cost of the our capacity to to treat all of these people as low and the cost of not doing it is high. Right. People die. Yeah. Right? Um, and we, and we, we say that in the medical field, a lot of people die of cancer, people die of these other things. Um, and in a, in a very similar way, people are dying because we haven't figured it out yet. Right. We haven't figured out what, uh, what patterns to look for, what, what things to identify, how do they get help in, in, uh, when they need it. Yeah. And we just have not figured it out yet. I, I suppose part of figuring this all out is getting buy-in or participation, right? Getting people to participate on a platform. I mean, obviously there's going to be a certain percentage of people that recognize they have a mental health challenge issue, something they want to address and they'll come and get help. Um, in order to prevent larger things, it would obviously be better if people participated that just already identified that, oh, I'm great, you know, everything's cool. Yeah. Well, how are you going to, any ideas on that barrier, that hurdle of like participation? (laughs) Because obviously I think you could probably look at the COVID situation right now and participation and certain level of healthcare, health participation is kind of very divided right now right right so yeah thought thought about this it is something we think a lot about um i'll try to answer that in a in a couple different ways one you are right there's a certain amount of people that no matter what you do they're just not going to participate and that's not just mental health or behavioral health Healthcare. They're not going to brush their teeth. They're right. not going to go see their, you know, they're not going to go for their annual checkups. They're not going to get their, um, you know, they're, they're just not going to participate in healthcare. The, right. the, those people, that that's just across across the board. Um, there are uh, 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 another set of people who, um, you know, understand that my I fell on my bike. My wrist hurts um i need an x-ray in order to know if that is broken so they're more likely to participate in an x-ray to determine if my uh, wrist is broken i think at some point we'll we'll get to a point where people understand uh uh mental health behavioral health overall wellness even just the comorbidity of these things with general medical uh conditions Mm -hmm. that there's a certain degree of like quote-unquote x-rays insight that we have to have 
to really elevate the type of treatment we get. We've actually yeah. just had a pretty low bar and we're right. just kind of used to it right. um, as, as a society, as a healthcare system. Um, and so we haven't really realized, it's like, oh, I can take an emotional x-ray <laughs> or an emotional blood draw right. and find a little bit about what's going on. Right. And as, you know, as we address the stigma with mental health, as that becomes more accepted, as people understand that our, our mental wellness actually drives and is underlying all of our health conditions, even right. if you're being seen for, for, for medical reasons, that our quality of life, our emotions, um, uh, uh, all play a part and it's all intertwined, right? We're, we're, we're realizing that over the, over the last you know, couple decades and especially the last couple of years that it's all, that it's all intertwined. Health is health. Um, and so, yeah, we, I, I think people get to a point where, where they understand like these are the types of things that, that are part of the healthcare process for my doctor to understand more about me in order right. to treat me. Yeah. And those people who already have that insight, we're seeing great participation, right? There's, right. there's people who are like, yes, I want to get better mm. quicker. Right. <laughs> like I don't like being in this spot. And so whatever you need doc, whatever information you need, um, to, to help me is, I'll, I'll give it to you, right? Yeah, We're used yeah. to going to a lobby and filling out, getting the clipboard, yeah, and filling a bunch of stuff out. iPad now, I, I, <laughs> iPad, uh, uh, or or they send you a link first. You know, like yeah. we're, we're used to giving some of that information. Um, but we're we're just used to giving static information, right? How much have you had a surgery? What medications are you on? When was the last time you were seen? You know does anything hurt like we're just used to giving static information but we're but we're used to giving information yeah so that it's, it's a small step to say start just giving us different information yeah yeah right and i think if people understand that hey you get more personalized health care right by giving us different information i think you know we've seen great success so far and like yep i'll i'll, I'll give you what you what you need and in fact I have more opportunity to tell you what's going on with me, right? <laughs> because the average, you know, visit in, with a primary care physician is nine minutes. Mm. You, you know, it's an hour to hour and a half long um, process, <laughs> right? But you're only with the doc for nine minutes, right? And he's making he or she making treatment decisions based on that. So, um, if if Hey, I, I want to get more information so you understand more of what's going on with me, so so you can treat me better and I can get better faster. I think generally people want to want to do that and are willing to do that. Yeah, yeah. I was being a little critical. I I, I would agree that a lot of people are in a, a place where like if all it took was them recording themselves in a one minute video or whatever it is, you know, to answer some questions, they would be all about it. I mean, for heaven's sakes, we have people recording TikToks and telling us about all kinds of facets of their life. Surely they can, you know, answer a few questions. Right. right. There, there's really no, yeah, it, it's, it's funny when people say, oh, well, they're going to record like that's a bear. It's like, have you, have you seen social media? It's not a barrier whatsoever. Right. Even the yeah. older generation who's, who's, uh, not used to that is still we're still seeing a lot of um, ability and um, uh, willingness to engage digitally with healthcare providers. Yeah, 
I think people do. You know, there, there's a level of of um, adoption early on that we do see. Uh, that's uh, like I mentioned. They're used to giving information. Right. Um, they're willing to give the information. They're even willing to give different information. The method of gathering that information's a little novel, mm. right? Because they're used to recording themselves, um, but they're not used to giving information via recording. Uh, yeah. And and so we do see some questions around that early on. So we do arm a lot of our customers and, and hospitals that use our system. Um, hey, here's how you kind of explain it. Here's how you understand it. You know, we're very open about our privacy and how we use the data. Um, uh, and so we kind of give them some of those those frequently asked questions, so to speak. But we really do see once somebody takes a session and checks in on our platform and really realizes that, oh, okay, this isn't like robots taking over. This yeah, is just not so bad. This, this is this is just um, uh, recording something uh, that that I can then submit to my provider, and they have more information about me and. Uh, you know, and even nowadays, they're used to traditional telehealth, where we're live talking, and 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 uh, so they're used to digitally interacting that way. And this is even just even more convenient, right? That I don't even have to wait to be live with a clinician, mm. because traditional telehealth is helpful, is more convenient for the patient because I don't have to drive to the office, right? But it's not any more convenient for the provider. Right. It's still the same fifteen minutes. Yeah. that I have to take it. It's still, it's still as inconvenient for both parties to try to find a time to meet. I only have availability at 2 p.m. The document, that's the only, that's the only appointment available. And so I have to take time off of work. I got to get somebody to watch the kids. I got to do this. I got to do that. Whether that's in office or via traditional live telehealth, it's still capacity constraint by schedules. Mm -hmm. Asynchronous telehealth, which is what our platform is, is kind of preloaded I know as a clinician what I want to ask what I need to know and, you know that's why we go to med school that's why we go to graduate school um, most of our questions we are semi-structured we know what we the information we need yeah. for the most part out of yeah. the patient um, not all of it because we have to interact in the moment uh, as well but 70 80 percent the majority of it we already know what types of questions we need to ask yeah. so we can preload those, send a link to a, a hundred patients um, and say, hey, in the next 24, 48 hours, kind of just answer three to five questions and right. information. And I can wake up, you know, I can get to my office on a Wednesday morning and have check-ins from a hundred patients. Right. There's no way I would have been able to do that in right. two days. Right. But now I know exactly how everyone's doing. Yeah. And let's say, uh, you know, the AI picked up on a few things or, or there's some responses that are concerning. Now I know who I need to reach out to and focus right. on. Yeah, yeah. I think that that would really help so much in this triage sort of phase. You you talked about making sure that those that need it most get it as soon as possible, and those that you know maybe just want it to help and improve a certain situation, but it's not an emergency. You know, then they yeah. can get that when they need it yeah. as well and it's not that those people will always stay sub because there's always going to be people in right. crisis so right. at some point we have to also give them attention as well sure um, but it does allow us to scale our interaction it, it solves the problem of I can't be everywhere at once mm. but I need to be in order to provide better treatment yeah 
And so I need to somehow replicate me as a clinician or you or, you know, whoever right. it is. And so these are the types of questions I'd ask. Let's get that get that out to as many people as, as needed. And now I have more information. So what about language and culture? Is that we got to get there after we figure out these first steps sort of thing? Or is same, same, just need to have somebody that can interpret language and culture? Yeah, language and culture is obviously a big, a big part of anyone's personalized health care and personal treatment. When it comes to AI it, as well, right? So yeah. can AI pick up on tonality for a certain culture better than others? Like that's absolutely something we have to be aware of um, and that we are aware of and that we we make sure that we're not um, using any computer analytics that are um, biased or discriminatory. Mm. Um, are they perfect? No. Or will we learn over time? Yes. And the, the funny thing is when people kind of ask a little bit about that, it, it's like, well, compare it to a human <laughs> we're biased sure. we're you know even even un, unintentionally even subconsciously we're, we're we're biased right and and so it's not that it's not that it can be eliminated in a sense but you know we we might just have a, a better chance to being objective than than uh, our human nature Right is the, and that we're already introduced into the therapeutic interaction or right. into the healthcare process, so it's already happening. We're just trying to improve it, yeah, um, uh, and 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 make it make it more objective. And the second way I was thinking about that uh, as well is that um, oftentimes when we're gathering data about somebody we can compare it to a normative sample, right? Mm -hmm. Like how do you compare against what we, what we would quote unquote normally see? Are you more or less than what we would expect? Um, and, and that really, uh, requires some understanding of, of culture and normative samples at an individual level though, as we're talking, going from this episodic care, to like seeing your doc every once in a while or seeing your provider every once in a while having a limited information and you just have to hurry and download moving from that episodic care to more continuous care it's really more about you as the individual mm. what is different for you right. so let's use rate of speech which we were using earlier um, do we know for the average American US American how fast somebody talks on average. Yeah, we know. So, but does somebody talking faster or slower than that average mean something? Probably not, unless it's an extreme. Small city versus big city. Right, exactly. <laughs> or southern versus northern. Right. Or, you know, or just somebody just naturally talks a little bit faster than somebody else like that, right. you know. Yeah. So it's, so to some degree for personalized healthcare, it, 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 both matter, but it matters slightly less how you compare to other people mm. and slightly more how you compare to yourself. Is this more or less for you? Right. Right. So if somebody's baseline is talking at 140 words per minute, okay. So if they're talking at 150 the next week, okay, slight increase, but probably not concerning, right? But if somebody's baseline is 100, average American is about 120. 
um, they're 100, a jump to 150 might be significant. Yeah. So it's really how do we compare you against you? The only way to know that is to know more about you. Right. That's why we're so used to just comparing you against the norm. Right. Because we do this one big, huge study 10 years ago, we get a normative sample, and now we compare against you against them. Right. But that doesn't actually help me understand you any right. better. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I think it's so important to, you know, have some sort of group level comparison versus just this is normal for me or not normal for me. Um, do the ethics of this change at all? Like, you know, the main ethics of mental health is like if you're a harm to yourself or somebody else then that's when we broke break this confidentiality and have to share the data about you you with somebody else in order to get you the help you need does are there any changes that you guys have come across or any other implications you've come across with the ethics all of all of this yeah yeah we get the question a lot of like um well what if somebody says they're suicidal on a video mm -hmm. right um am i now liable to to, to have known that in, in the moment. Um, or, uh, or if they, if they said something, do we as a company have to report that? So a couple ways to, to, to talk about that is at, at the simplest level, this type of technology is, um, a sophisticated data gathering tool, mm -hmm. right? So it's a, it's a tool. It's not an intervention. It's not a clinician. It's not making decisions. Um, so it's just a, 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 a data gathering tool in the same way that, you know, the clipboard or their iPad is gathering information. Right. We're just doing it at a much more sophisticated level, right? right. Um, rate of speech, emotion, affect, Sentiment, right? Things that you don't pick up on yeah. on on a uh, an information sheet on the clipboard or the the um, uh, digital format of that. But at its core, it's still just sure. uh, yeah information to be used. So traditionally, let's say I'm treating somebody who has suicidal ideation, um, you know, and uh, they leave my office. They weren't in an active enough. Uh, situation or idea, uh, ideation that I needed to hospitalize them or anything um, and they harm themselves outside of my office right there's some inherent risk that we take treating people with these type of severe um, uh, uh, conditions and, and things that they're struggling with mm -hmm. and so by using a technology tool to help gather information I don't think increases or decreases the liability that we already have Right. Yeah. We already have that liability yeah. as clinicians. Yeah. So, you think about like our old voicemails, um, and you still may hear this sometimes. So, uh, hi, this is Doctor Brett Talbot's confidential voicemail. Please leave me a message um, uh, if you are experiencing a crisis uh, or an emergency. Yeah. Please call nine one one. Right. Because quote unquote. I don't know when I'm going to listen to my yeah. voicemails. Don't leave a crisis on my voicemail. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, and so you put that disclaimer on your voicemail. Right. And now you're kind of, you know, there's this understanding of like, this is giving, you're going to record some information for me to get at a later time. Right. These type of technology tools at, at some level are similar, right? right. We, we give that same disclaimer. It's the same terms of use that, hey, you're going to give some information, um, but somebody's not necessarily actively watching it. Right. Um, 
and you know it will be analyzed and reviewed later in and used to help treat to know you better and treat you better right um so so again no more or less liability than we than we already have uh and we put those disclaimers on each just like on the voicemail each time somebody checks in on on our platform that disclaimer is there in in kind of that um in, instructions page before they begin their session um or begin their check-in uh and, and it's kind of throughout all the legalese of everything as well but okay. um so we're taking on the same liability uh but the opportunity to improve care is higher right so yeah. so I, even me, if I had to take on a little bit more risk to make a lot of difference, I might, I still might do that. Right. But we're kind of saying, no, you just have this, the same liability you already have and the, and the opportunity to understand your patients and clients better is, you know, is very high, uh, and, and, and empowering and powerful. So, you know, so we, we, we can should and could and need to get past some of this like oh i don't want to be responsible mm. well you already are right. so if you didn't realize that until now then right. that, that's another issue but you already are so let's just do better yeah i suppose like i mean maybe one area could add in another layer is that you know if you have something recorded from somebody saying something and it might be helpful in, in some some sort of an investigation. You you're now to like this this whole thing that Apple got into is like oh no unlock this person's phone so we can see what they were saying before they did this broke this law so yeah. that we can figure that yeah. out. You can get yourself in that those sort of situations and I suppose that would be part of the liability that the client would sign or a release would be like we can share this in certain in certain situations. Well, or, so it's it's so I'll. So it's it's hard to talk about. Um, well, what would happen in this case? So let me yeah, let me yeah, sure. let me respond that in in general, um, which is uh, the healthcare interactions are protected through HIPAA, yeah. right? And mm -hmm. and um, even more so in, in in some other cases. And so whether a clinician wrote down some notes on a on a notepad or a patient recorded some information on a video the information is equally protected because mm. it's personal health information mm -hmm. right so that's protected and so it would be um up to the clinician to determine when those when that information whether it's on a on a piece of paper or on a video recording uh through a vendor's platform like ours when when those things um, are are to be released or not, uh, right? So yeah. again, it's actually not a whole lot different than what we've always been, yeah. right? Somebody could subpoena my records if I typed them on my electronic medical record, right? Right, and these and the information that's being gathered about patients on a on a platform like ours protected just just the same. So yeah, there's really not a lot of difference in what we're doing now versus what we've been doing before from a liability and from a protected standpoint um it's just different yeah. information yeah but same 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 process same rules same protection yeah that makes sense so you you talked about the platform the platform is called videra 
Bedera Health, yes. Bedera Health. So where are you at in terms of scale and use, like in terms of people, clients, uh, businesses yeah. using this and where is it going? Yeah, so it's it's funny because we'll go, we'll go back to that idea of like um, stability and entrepreneurial plunge. And, you know, I, I said, well, if I'm not going to do it now, you know, there, there's no other time that that's going to be more stable than now. No better time than now. Right. And so that was August 2019. <laughs> <laughs> uh, quit my job, you know, started this business, incorporated it late August. Um, we had been working kind of moonlighting to, to kind of get beta versions of the platform up and going. So we actually launched our first, um, we, we had done a, an NIH funded grant study prior to this to kind of prove out the technology. Mm -hmm. Um, so we, we'd had some live patients on it, um, from a, from a research standpoint, but not from like a commercial standpoint. So we onboarded our first, uh, our first, uh, uh, facility, um, treatment center with live patients, um, February of 2020. Okay. <laughs> um, and we onboarded our second clinic with live patients, uh, um, the first week of March, 2020, yeah. second week of March, you know, COVID hits the world, particularly in Utah kind of world stops. Right. So right. all of that context to say, we're a young startup. Um, we have a lot of, uh, my, my co-founders, uh, you know, have years and years of entrepreneurial experience as, as well as building AI technology, um, and video analytic technology. So we have a background, but as a company, as Videra Health, we were somewhat young and all of a sudden the world stopped. Mm. And, uh, to some degree, like our technology, um, can be very valuable. Like, right. We saw for like uh, a situation like a pandemic so we saw a massive increase in adoption of telehealth because now we can't see people um, face to face at the same time that black hole still existed right we still actually don't know how you're doing or progressing right. when you're not in front of me whether it's in my office or on video right so there was a some opportunity to have that so we got a lot of big calls really early on um, but our product wasn't quite there yet, right? right? Like we just just launched. We just had a few a uh, few people on. So there was a time in in 2020 where um, you know where that that idea of stability <laughs> kind of <laughs> yeah. really came into my mind again. Right. <laughs> um, you know, uh, luckily we've been able to grow through through the through the pandemic. Um, and you know, we're not where we where we want it to be in terms of overall um, adoption and, and growth. But we do about um, 10,000 sessions a month wow. right now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, ad adoption and participation and engagement vary. Right. Um, we're, we're in settings such as behavioral hospitals who use us for post-discharge follow-up, uh -huh. um, you know, kind of automation of what used to be people just calling saying, hey, Peter, it's been, you know, weeks since you last discharged, just wondering if you're okay, you uh -huh. know, like we can now automate that. They're checking in more often. We're getting more clinically sophisticated information. Um, we're in outpatient settings, psych, you know, psychiatric offices, um, addiction and drug abuse 
uh, clinics, um, uh, uh, you know, in, in a variety of settings uh, that way. We're expanding now beyond, um, uh, you know, m- core mental health and behavioral health uh, treatment to um, to behavioral health kind of integration. So okay. we're starting to work with, you know, uh, OBGYN clinics who are struggling to detect, track, and treat uh, postpartum depression, mm. which is a huge problem, yeah, yeah. and 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 they're not equipped to do that. You know, a mother is at home, maybe comes into the office three times, uh, four times, but what's going on in between that? We really have no insight into right. how mom is doing. Right. Um, so now she can check in on just on her smart device, record a thirty second video, answer a few questions, you know, three times a week for those first couple of months after right. giving birth, and now we really have insight into how mom is doing. Yeah. Um, same with pain clinics. Um, we're, we're you know people who are uh, trying to treat chronic pain with you know some some medications that can can be uh, dangerous and addictive, and so um, we're in early conversations of. Um, how to, you know, track and monitor pain patients in between uh, those appointments, and they need to be checking in to make sure mm. they're not, you know, uh, misusing or diverting dangerous drugs. Right. Um, and if if they're not having the effect that they need to, well, let's get them off those drugs right. earlier before they become addictive. You know, things that we're just seeing. Um, you know, our mental health and our behavioral health is much more intertwined into our overall health. Sure. Um, and and finding ways to you know uh, to gather and, and empower clinicians with better information in a lot of different uh, different settings. At our core, we're humans, right? right. At our core, we're emotional. Um, at our core, we're there's there's much more to what makes us us than the vital signs that we get. Uh, uh, at the beginning of a uh, checkup sure. in, an, in an office. And that's true across whatever health condition. We're focused on right now on behavioral health and mental health. That's partially my background as well as probably one of the bigger gaps mm. in in the larger healthcare right. landscape. But eventually we see it being a- applicable to um, you know lots of different um, uh, uh, monitoring the, the concept right now in in healthcare is called remote patient monitoring. Mm. We're doing that a lot for specific things, like I mentioned, diabetes, um, high blood pressure, uh, other chronic conditions, heart conditions. We have devices that will monitor very specific metrics for those conditions, and um, what is the metric, and what is the device to track humans, uh, to track us as a person. Right. And uh, we, we find that the, the, the metric is you, mm. right? Yeah. Not a vital sign, not your right. weight, not your height, not these vital signs, but it's you. It's understanding who you are, how you are, all those things that we talked about earlier, how you, how you um, sound, look like, talk like, uh, across your health journey, that's the metric. What's the device? Uh, well, also you, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. And what's and right now, what's the best way to capture you? Video and audio, uh, right? Right. Not, not, it's not your 
necessarily just your heart rate. Right. Um, and then biometrics, you know, we're integrated with the Apple Watch right now. So right. you can, somebody who has an Apple Watch, in, in addition to the video um, and audio that we gather, we can pull information off of the health kit as well. Yeah. And that, yeah. you know, so all of this information um, that we can start to gather to really understand you. Right. Uh, and, and that's that's the core metric and the core device of how you as an individual and uh, go through your health journey. So if I'm catching the vision 10 years from now, Videra Health is not only helping access with mental health, but maybe just health in general. Maybe it's just a larger platform where people go to check in on all avenues of life and then get uh, you know connected to the appropriate professional from there or would you like to be more specific yeah well i mean i mean there's a lot of ways you know technology sure. this type of innovation uh, innovative technology can be used a lot of different ways if we to try to do it all at once we won't do any of it well so i think right. there's a pathway uh what you kind of highlighted is kind of this idea of a top of the funnel like can we mm-hmm. assess mm-hmm. um uh, need right now you usually have to either self-assess right. I need this which right. generally um, we're not good at right. <laughs> um, some people are better than others but generally we're not good at self-assessing um, or you have to be in front of a professional to assess you right right and there's capacity constraints there right. and consistency issues with that right so you that's why you get people flying from all over countries to see somebody specific mm. because they're good at that type of assessment. Right. Well, that sucks, right? Yeah. That, that doesn't create access to good healthcare. Right. That creates um, uh, a bottleneck to specific people who are very good at that, which is right. great, but we need to make that more accessible, more scalable. Yeah. Um, so, so top of the funnel, can we assess people... Uh, more broadly, sure, like that, that could work. Could we assess very specific conditions down to postpartum depression and when that onset happens, we could do that as well. Um, side effects to medications, we could do that, you know, so right. there's top of the funnel, bottom of the funnel, um, there's uh, assessment, prevention, intervention, uh, follow-up, right? There's this whole journey of care. And so uh, in, in reality, it's applicable the the bigger vision to to what you were saying is that yeah understanding somebody at an individual level at any point with any condition is good right yeah <laughs> and so over time we'll just have to to get there um kind of one condition at a time and one use case at a time yeah yeah makes makes sense so if people wanted to you know, follow you, hear more about Videra, get you know, use the product, use the platform, what's that next step? Yeah, right. Right now, we um, are. It's it's somewhat of think about it as kind of prescription based. Uh-huh. So you so you'd be working with a provider that uses us. Uh-huh. Um, we don't have like a direct to consumer okay um, uh, app right now. So again keeping the clinician in the loop so we're right. not uh, you know gathering information feeding back information to uh, a, a, a patient or a person who may or may not know what to do with that information right. there's good to that there's also potentially 
you know, um, bad to that. Right. And so we like to keep a clinician involved. So right now, um, it, you know, for people want involved, ask ask your provider whether that's you know your OBGYN, your pain doc, your therapist, your clinician, your wh- whoever you're working with. If you want them to understand more about how you're doing when they're not with you. And to get better quicker, then just ask them about if they're you ask them if they're using Videra Health. You'd like to check in on that, so um, so they have that information. If they're not, then uh, you know they can you can reach out uh, directly to us, um, VideraHealth.com. Um, you know, follow us on all the social media platforms. Sure. Yeah, um, follow my personal LinkedIn, um, uh, as as well as all of our other. Uh, uh, platforms and uh, uh, you know ultimately yes people people who want to um, be a little bit more in the driver's seat of their own health journey uh-huh. um, want to do things like this right, right? Um, and uh, there's some old school clinicians and old school providers who don't want to do things differently mm-hmm. and so I think part of the movement as well is that if we're if we're if we want personalized health care if we want uh, our our provider to know more about me then we also have to demand that mm-hmm. and it's been hard to demand that right um, because it, it was very easy for providers to say, like, look, I, I can't, you can pay more and right. I'll see you more. Right. And then health insurance won't cover it. You know, all, right. all these different constraints that it just wasn't possible. And now, now it is right, right? now it's possible. And so if we want that, if we think we're going to get better quicker because of that, then we also just need to ask for it. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. And then we'll, we'll, we'll work with people. We, we definitely know where we understand, healthcare process and 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 what can be valuable we also understand that there's areas that uh, we need to learn learn more about yeah and so we're happy to engage with uh, any interested providers or or um, you know people who who want to in, uh, use something like this that we can we can figure a way out to do so yeah cool um, I think one you know kind of final thought that I had just from more of like a a personal relationship level me and you sort of have this way that we deal with mental health and I'm assuming a little bit here but I think it's a safe assumption is that we go outside and use the outside spaces (laughs) of Utah a lot to help with our mental health you know whether that's hiking or biking or skiing or whatever outdoor activity you, you choose um I think a lot of people, especially here in Utah, might be interested about that connection, about like the connection between maybe improved mental health and getting outside. Do you want to talk about your personal experience with that? Yeah. So, so associated with, but, but previously to, um, starting a technology company, Mm -hmm. (laughs) one of my core areas of, of focus and of research was the use of outdoors, nature, adventure as a treatment modality. Mm. Um, and so spent a lot of years of my, uh, career involved for that. And, and we're still in, in, and I'm still involved in, in that as well. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of research saying 
we we can own and control more of our of our healthcare journey and our healthcare experience in it and it and it doesn't have to be traditional in office mm. stuff right so mm-hmm. let's just take mental health for example kind of the the quintessential uh, you know lay down on a long couch guy with a you know sports jacket and a bow tie sitting with a clipboard you know we we moved away from that a little bit but we're still stuck on a couch sure yeah. <laughs> in an office right and and you know I, I've seen value the research suggests that there's so much um, uh, uh, value to kind of taking therapy off the couch right into the outdoors and how much value that brings and I think to tie that kind of into my current you know, uh, endeavors is that we, we really realize that, um, that, uh, healthcare and health journeys happen in real life, mm. in real time. <laughs> like, like it's right. just this idea like, oh, healthcare only happens when you're in an office or in front of a clinician. It's like, that's only at best. Right. 50 minutes a week for somebody who's seeing an individual an individual therapist weekly right, right. and that's yeah. like that's a lot for right. most for most people um, but the other 24 hours of that day and the 20 or 23 hours for that day and the 24 hours of every other day that week healthcare is still happening in real life right and if we don't have insight if we don't have data if we don't have a different way of going about that if we continue to just stick with in office vital signs only then we're going to continue just to get the same limited information and limited results that we have yeah we have to think alternatively um, and we, we've thought alternatively for a long time but uh, it, to this point it's like we've seen great success by doing the same modality the same interventions in a different setting right right the same therapy you would do sitting across from a, on a couch just do that same thing under a tree right or next to a river mm. or walking on a trail and we see exponentially better uh, outcomes yeah um, by doing that and and same thing with any type of assessment or intervention or 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 data gathering it's like we ha- we have to realize that that after our patient leaves our site they still exist right <laughs> and yeah. their struggles and their successes and their emotions and everything still is happening and i think the wilderness uh and the outdoor therapy modality and 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 context has really taught us that that, yeah. that things are happening outside of the office and we and and we need um greater insight into it um uh so yeah, still very passionate about uh, um, you know treatment modalities that get they get people outside of of uh, of a traditional quote unquote four walls um, uh, to think about their journey differently and at a different level um, and engaging with with each other uh, uh, at a more personal uh, uh, outside of the format formal. Uh, office, you know, engaging with each other differently that way. So you, Dr. Talbot, you're going to de- decompress, de-stress, let go of things. What are you doing? Um, well, <laughs> uh, uh, nowadays, that's, <laughs> that is more uh, limited. Um, uh, 
but in, this, in the same way that we all need a self-care, I, I try to do that as well. So I'm still very involved in, in the outdoors. Obviously, I like to, when I decompress, I like to spend time with my family. I have three little kids, nine, uh, seven, and six. So um, hanging out with them. Um, but yeah, very, very still uh, uh, involved in um, being outdoors, being in nature. Uh, I think it uh, is revitalizing. It uh, re-engages me. It re, um, you know, recenters me. I think there's a lot of value to that that continues in my own personal life as well as you know professionally. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. I think from my personal standpoint, just the uh, you know, just getting my physical person into a different physical space that I've never seen or experienced before or re-experienced because my first experience was really good. Mm -hmm. um, that sort of uh, action repeated over time just really helps me in all facets of my life like to to just go to this this spot that i just want to see what this spot looks like and it's literally changing what i'm seeing in my eyes and what my brain is seeing compared to the four walls of my house or the four walls of my office it's so helpful to just literally physically see that and experience the the everything else that all the senses that go with that right yeah it's that idea that we were talking about a while back which was like it just broadens our experience it broadens our awareness right like somebody can go interact with nature with very little awareness right? right like people can just go outside and i'm getting from a to b right not a lot of awareness right and and research says they'll still probably benefit from, you know, exposure to the, the you know, the, the sun and, and exposure to outdoors. Like that's physiologically helpful. But the people who are more aware and more insightful around their interaction with nature gain even more right. uh, health benefits. Yeah. Um, so the difference between walking through some trees to get to my car versus walking through some trees to relax mm. um, versus walking through some trees to really center myself emotionally, right? right? It's the same act, but with different purposes or intention. Right. And the more we can be aware and intentional around our interaction with, with nature, the more health benefits we're going to get. Right. Yeah, for sure. I think we could go on a whole nother journey talking about that kind of stuff for sure if you had any other parting wisdom or parting comments for people you know about mental health or just in general what would you have um hmm. uh, maybe just a, a little bit more down to to um kind of let's just uh talk human to you to human is that look we're struggling people are struggling people have issues and that's okay mm. right we're, we're, yeah. we're becoming more aware that you know we, we hear a lot of these terms it's okay to not be okay um it's okay to um struggle with certain things and as, as that stigma it decreases um it's becoming more acceptable so uh uh I guess all of that just to preface this this wisdom of like, look, if if you're listening and you're struggling for through something or you need some help, there's people there to help you. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, access to mental health care is hard right now. Mm -hmm. um, health care is hard. Insurance is hard. Like there's so many obstacles that prevent us getting uh, that potentially prevent us from getting the help that um, 
that that we could benefit from and so like work through those right don't like there's hope things get better um life can be very very good and there's ways in in to 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 get to get the help um so to anyone listening who is struggling with something or knows somebody's struggling, like let's let's find ways to to help people. Um, to providers uh, listening, let's find different ways to do that. Yeah, yeah, right? I like let's, that. Let's let's yeah. let's find uh, other ways to to treat people. There's a lot going on that that that. Uh, are obstacles to how we treat people just as there's obstacles to, for patients getting treatment let's remove those let's work through those let's find ways to improve how we help people live better lives and uh ultimately that's kind of that's the goal that's my passion right yeah and any health provider i think at some level um, well, let me rephrase that. Most, I can't say any, but most, I would imagine, at some level, got into some sort of healthcare because they wanted to make a difference. For sure. And yeah. uh, along the ways, along the way, you know, systems and obstacles have kind of prevented us from, from doing that. And it's going to take a movement. It's going to take a lot of us, all of us, to change the way we we do this and, and save people's lives and improve quality of lives. So it so this idea goes from I was I'm sitting across one person making a difference to then, you know, diverting my career to technology to make a macro difference for a lot of people. Right. So that the individual is more cared for. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. Is, is has a, a a higher quality of life improves is able to do those things that they want to be able to do so it's kind of this circle that I've I found myself realizing that it's a macro influence but still the end goal is very individual I really like that to, to make a difference in people's lives so whatever you can do however you can do it um small things large things we all have different ways of of doing it but let's improve people's lives let's do what we can um uh, to become better as a society, to become better as a community, um, friends, family, you know, um, coworkers. Let's do what we can to uh, to be an influence for good and uh, remove obstacles and increase access so people can get the help that they need. I love that, and it's uh, it's pretty solid advice when the person giving that advice is taking that advice because you, you know, you're you're all about going around that that circle of like, oh, I'm my goal as a clinician is to eventually help as many people as possible, and you're giving that you know that same advice to clinicians or anybody trying to help is like let's let's try to think about this differently to see how we can become better at it or help more, include more, be more inclusive. I think that's awesome. Absolutely. So say the, the the website one more time for Videra. Yep, VideraHealth.com, V-I-D-E-R-A. Um, it's actually a, a quick funny story is uh, it actually is a derivative of, of the Latin word to see. Oh, okay. And that's kind of how we can, and, and it's also how we in English came up with the word video. Oh, okay. So when we talk about, oh, you know, versus audio recording when we started versus having video recording, 
uh, we could see it, not just hear it. Yeah. And so when we talk about Videra Health, we're talking about seeing people. Right. Um, and seeing people differently, not just in the different modality, right? Seeing people not in an office or not live on telehealth. We're seeing people differently, but we're also seeing parts of people that we weren't able to yeah. see before. We're actually yeah. getting, uh, uh, we're seeing more depth right. about what we can understand about human experience right. um, by uh, by leveraging this type of technology. So that's where Videra Health came from, V-I-D-E-R-A health.com. Uh, and uh, just remember to see people more as humans. We're all we're all going through going through this life, different experiences, different cultures is where we started this conversation. Right. See people as people. Right. And and our platform can help clinicians do that clinically. I love that. And you personally, Doctor Brett Talbot on LinkedIn. Um, yes, I, I, to be honest, I don't know exactly what <laughs> off the top of my head, what, what the handle is. Um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. Search him up if you yeah. want to find them. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed the conversation. I think it's really helpful. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here and, and just chatting with you about, you know, our, our experience together, what we've experienced, um, uh, talking about things we're passionate about is always, always a good time. For sure. Awesome. It's done. Two, two hours and eight minutes. Well done. Well, not your 20 minute podcast, but talk no, a lot. We don't, I don't, I don't good things. I like the long form <laughs> conversation. Well, we need a lot of topics. We did. Did I did I do okay? You did great.